I could start this story about the way public universities are spending extravagantly right now, a lot of places. I could tell you about the colleges building esports arenas. I could tell you about the massive climbing walls that are no longer that uncommon. But for me, it was something much smaller that stood out. University of Kentucky's dorms. They don't have communal bathrooms. They've got granite countertops. They have full-size Tempur-Pedic mattresses. I never had a full-size bed in college. I, I still don't have a Tempur-Pedic bed. <laughs> no. <laughs> Melissa Korn is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And they are, they are not going above and beyond. They don't have a lazy river in Kentucky. Uh, they do it a lot of other schools. A lazy river? Like, is that l- a man-made river? Oh, yeah. Tell, okay, I just need, I need you to tell me about the lazy rivers. <laughs> the most famous one is probably Louisiana State University. It's in the shape of LSU. Uh, it's quite a few years old now, and they are not unique in this anymore. We, when I was doing some reporting, we decided not to put it in the story because some of them had been around for so long. But there are well over a dozen public universities with lazy rivers, water parks, um, One university has an indoor grotto, um, like a 30-person whirlpool tub. There's, I wouldn't mind going on vacation to some of these places. At University of Kentucky, they openly brag about how much they're spending. There are billions of dollars of new investments in the campus there over the past 12 years. Billions with a B. With a B. They boast on their website that they have spent the equivalent of $805,000 per day for 12 years. So who's footing the bill for all this? Uh, The students are footing a big part of the bill. Some version of this is happening at flagship universities across the country where they're spending on the things you can see, like buildings and um, athletic facilities and things like that. They're also spending on things you can't necessarily see, like benefits for their staff and faculty and administrators. It's kind of this sprawl in every direction all at once. Today on the show, how spending began to sprawl across the country at public universities and why no one with any power tried to stop it. Now, Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
Okay, I'm going to kind of set us back to the beginning and just ask, like, why did you want to look into public universities and how much they were charging students and how they were spending that money? Why did that work appeal to you? So I've been covering higher ed for nearly a decade in uh, general higher ed, and college has gotten more expensive, certainly. And even public universities, it's gotten more expensive. And I think one thing that It was kind of, we knew it got more expensive, but no one ever really dug into the why or just made some general assumptions, but didn't have dollar figures to back it up. So we wanted to do a more rigorous, thorough analysis of this of, okay, where is the money going? How has that changed over time? And has that changed as state funding dropped or did schools just continue to fuel this growth with with tuition dollars? And what did that mean for the students? So we focused on the 50 flagships, one from each state, in part because those are generally the oldest, best known university in public university in that state. And they have a mission to be serving the citizens of that state and giving them an accessible higher education. What did you find out about when things began to change at these flagship universities? Like when tuition started really ramping up? Was there like a starting point for this? So we started in 2002 and tuition was uh, steadily climbing then. In that first decade, 2002 to 2012, we saw a lot of increases. Uh, That's in some cases, the schools were, um, you know, trying to raise money for other programs and buildings and scholarship support for other students and, you know, full pay tuition students cover those, some of those scholarship costs. In some cases, it was because state funding was starting to fall. Uh, In some cases, it was because they had the freedom to, that they hadn't necessarily before, to set their own tuition. So they could go and chase the tuition of their competitors. Hold it. Why did they have the freedom? Is it that somehow the state legislature said, oh, yeah, sure, you can just charge more? Exactly. So uh, in Oklahoma, for instance, the state higher ed board got authority to increase its prices by a lot more. They had more control over what prices they set. And they were at kind of the low end of their competitor peer pool. And they wanted to not be at the low end anymore because it kind of seemed like they were leaving money on the table if they did that. You use Kentucky as an example of this wider trend, and I don't want to pick on them, but I do want to dig into what happened there because I think you have so many interesting concrete stories that really answer this question of why and how what's happened over the last two decades has happened. So I'm kind of curious if we can start at the beginning. Like the school set out decades ago to become one of the best universities in the country. How did it do that and and why did it want to do that? Right. So in the late 90s, the state actually kind of issued this directive that University of Kentucky should become a top 20 public research university. So school that offers doctoral degrees, does a ton of research and undergraduate as well. Um, And then a few years after they kind of set that very lofty goal, they started cutting funding to the school. Huh. But they didn't rescind the directive. (laughs) That's strange. Yes, and they're by far not the only school that has a college ranking number in mind and they set strategic plans or kind of think through how to spend their money. So they, you know, had this goal of being a top 20 school and wanted to 
pursue that in a whole lot of different ways. That included raising pay for faculty, because that then would attract more and higher caliber faculty. They increased research uh, operations significantly, so they would get more and more funding from federal grants, but the school itself also pays for a portion of all of the research. And they wanted to be bringing in both more academically qualified and wealthier students to help cover some of these costs. They wanted to grow. They, again, wanted to do a little bit of everything, and they wanted to be on the national stage in athletics. So when the state said, we have this mandate, we want you to be in the top 20 public schools, and then they took away funding, was there protest? Were people like, hold it, (laughs) this is an unfunded mandate. It's going to be a problem. There's uproar and consternation whenever the state cuts funding, either at Kentucky or elsewhere. And rather than say, okay, let's rethink our goals here. Let's rethink the scope of our mission. Let's adjust our costs to match our new revenue. The school, and again, others as well, just said, okay, we'll find the money elsewhere. You know, we're not going to, as the current president said years ago, you know, we're not going to trim our aspirations. We're not going to cut our way to to success, things like that. It was, you know, we're still going to grow. We'll just get a little more creative in where the money comes from. And in many instances, they turned to the students. Yeah. I mean, you have this kind of stunning statistic that Kentucky took in about 70% more in tuition and fee revenues per student than it did 20 years ago, which is, it's a lot. It is. And some of that, and that's accounting for inflation. Uh, so yeah, the some of that is because they raised prices, just straight up raised the costs that uh, students were on the hook for. Part of it is because they increased out-of-state enrollment. Uh, so they, you know, out-of-state students pay more. But this is a main revenue stream that the school really looked to to help fund much of this uh, expansion, much of the campus growth, much of the ambitious plan. How is the cost of going to school in a place like Kentucky or, or really any of these flagship universities, how is it impacting students with fewer resources? It definitely hits lower income students the most, I'd say low-income and middle-income students as well who aren't necessarily qualifying for the most generous aid packages, but certainly can't come anywhere close to paying out of pocket for these, even the public universities, where, you know, you're looking at $100,000 after scholarships at the most expensive ones, uh, again, uh, over four years. Again, that's, that's at a public university. You mentioned how Kentucky started this push towards charging more tuition because they wanted to be in the top 20 of public colleges and universities and that they didn't quite get there. They they missed the mark pretty badly, actually. They're in like the 60, top 60. So when you talk to university administrators, do they think all this was worth it? Absolutely. They say, sure, that number was great. We're not so focused on that number now, that top 20 rank. We are focused on growing, on growing access, on growing our healthcare care pro- uh, operation, 
on serving the state in lots of different ways. And we are, we remain really ambitious and we have done great things for the state. We have done great things for the students, great things for research. And, you know, the board agrees. They continue to extend the the contract of the current president. He's been there over a decade now. Um, And he is one of the top paid public university presidents, I believe. He actually, it's written into his contract that his pay is tied to um, the top pay for other presidents in their athletic conference, plus 10%. Sweet deal. How do the students feel about that? Like, <laughs> I, I get it that the the university is selling something here, right? They want to always be hustling here <laughs> to get more students and to get more prestige. But the students who are paying these bills, do they feel like it's worth it? So many current and recent grad- current students and recent graduates, people who are more intimately involved in the finances of the school, people on student government, things like that, they're frustrated. Say, so, you know, I get that my school wants to look really pretty. I get that my school wants to be competing against, you know, an Ivy or something. But I also get that that's my money they're using to do it. And that's adding up. And it just can't keep going in this direction. That said, they are still, you know, students there. They chose to go there. They didn't walk away. So there remains this kind of opportunity for schools, right? As long as someone's willing to pay, they're likely going to keep charging what they do. After the break, why public universities' budget proposals sail through even as they jack up prices. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We've mentioned some of the incentives that drive these flagship universities to raise their tuition and spend lavishly, it seems like. But I want to dig into those a little bit more. Like, how how does charging students more mean that you're going to change where you are on the college rankings? Like, how does that all come together? Yeah, so the granddaddy of the rankings, U.S. News & World Report, has for a long time and continues to uh, weigh in its, in its ranking consideration things like spending per student. You are rewarded for spending more on categories including academics, research, and student services. Student services is a very broad bucket of things and can include 
admissions and academic uh, counseling, you know, uh, tutoring and cultural programming, things like that. So there is a very clear incentive. If you're spending more on these things, you may get higher marks in the ranking. If you pay your faculty more, you will get higher ranking, higher marks in the rankings because that uh, faculty salary is another thing that they consider. Uh, they look at um, class sizes and, you know, smaller classes, you need more instructors to teach those classes. So that is more expensive. There's lots of little things besides just the straight up spending per student uh, category where having more money to throw at the problem will help you. You've also kind of picked apart this excuse some universities have used, which is that they're not getting funding from the state, which I say excuse, even though this is obviously real. Like if you're getting less funding from the state, you need to get funding from somewhere. But what did you find when you dug into this reasoning just to see, like, is that what they're doing here? Like, is that what's happening with these tuition costs? Yeah. So we looked at the state appropriations uh, line item in the school's uh, financial statements. And we looked at uh, tuition revenue line item. And we looked at kind of how those have changed over time. And what we saw is that uh, at the median school, at the median school where state funding fell, for every dollar they lost in state funding, they earned $2.40 in tuition revenue. So again, they filled that hole and then they just kept going. This was not just to, to offset the losses at the state level. This was to offset those losses and then grow a whole lot and have just a ton more money coming in to do with as they saw fit. Did anyone have a fix for what's happening with these flagship universities? Like one, one thing that stood out to me reading your reporting is that a lot of these places have boards overseeing them, but they, they aren't really doing much to control spending as far as I can tell. Right. They have boards. Whether or not they're overseeing the schools, I think, is potentially debatable in some cases. There's not a ton of accountability here. You've got, in many places, the boards are appointed by the governor uh, they are, you know, political. They are sometimes people with great business skills, you know, f- financial acumen, but that's in the private sector. The business of running a school is just quite different. And I spoke with a professor who, an economist who studied some of this, and he found that when there's a proposal that would increase costs at a university, the boards approved those 98% of the time and almost always unanimously. There's no dissent. There's no, do we really need to do this? Let's rethink that. And there's, um, you know, if it gets to the board, it's going to be approved. It's a rubber stamp. And I spoke to some current board members and recent board members who said how frustrating that is, that they're sick of being the lone voice of dissent. Uh, You know, a vote goes 16 to 1, and they're always that one. And I'll say, after our story ran, we got emails from current and former trustees of flagship universities, as well as uh, state higher ed uh, officials and people in various state legislatures asking to see our numbers because they wanted to learn more about what was going on at their school. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask if there were lawmakers or state 
at the state or federal level who are trying to draw attention to all this. It sounds like your reporting at least got some attention. It definitely did. And I, you know, we're keeping a close eye on what happens in the state houses. And the state can also do things, right? In many cases, they're, as we said, there's state funding and uh, states can tie their funding to different things. And they do more in the past few years, say, we'll give you more in state appropriations if you keep tuition flat, if you freeze this cost, if you find a way to remain affordable for our local students. So they're they're getting some more teeth there. And at the federal level, too, there's certainly been, you know, regular talk about where schools spend their money and the student loan crisis and should schools have some skin in the game, right? If their students are borrowing, uh, should the school be on the hook for making sure that they can pay it back, that they get a job that can cover their loan costs? Uh, schools have a very strong lobbying arm in Washington, that proposal has not really made much headway ever. But, uh, you know, there, there's an acknowledgement that this isn't just happening to schools, that there, there's some agency here by schools that led us to this place right now. Honestly, it's interesting. I was reading your reporting, and it seemed to me in some ways that what was happening here was the natural outgrowth of the system we've built for higher education. Like college rankings reward spending. And we've told kids that college is one of the best ways they can become employable in this economy. And then there's easy money available to students and their families in the form of college loans. So it seems kind of obvious this is happening. Like we've we've almost set up a system where there's no way it wouldn't happen. Right. There does seem to be some inevitability here. Um, That doesn't mean it's the way that it always needs, the direction it always needs to go, you know, in the future. But... It's certainly, there were signs that we were heading toward this for a very long time. And I don't think people who study higher ed are shocked to know that this is where we ended up because of the various incentives, the easy funding uh, through student loans, parent loans, the fierce competition. Everyone is competing for the same students and the same dollars, and they are not competing on price. Melissa, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Melissa Korn is a higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you later. <laughs>